John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Editor's note, they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the, Jesus, the, the leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This account, John 5, 1 through 15, is quickly becoming one of my favorites in all Scripture. And I want to dive into it with you this morning. But before that, I want you to pray with me. Father, we're here and counted a privilege to get to open up your word and invite you to be here with us, and invite you to speak to us. Pray that we not be lethargic about this time. I pray we interact with your word with great urgency and seriousness. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to with great gentleness and mercy and grace convict us. Not, not to our destruction, Father, but rather for our repentance. Ask in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you be present, that you convict us of sin, that you convict us of apathy, that you convict us of complacency, that you convict us of lethargy, that you convict us of pride and the arrogance of thinking we have nothing to repent of. Not so that we would be destroyed. Not so that we could try to be good people, but simply that we would repent. And in our repentance, give us all that your mercy and your grace will allow us. In your name I pray, amen. This takes place at the Pool of Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered patios. 
for thousands of years, people claimed this place did not exist. Archaeologists couldn't find it. Because they couldn't find it, they claimed it didn't exist. And because they claimed it didn't exist, they claimed the Bible was not true. Until 1888, when it was discovered. Exactly as the Bible says it is, two poles covered with five covered patios. It's interesting to me that every time one makes a claim about the Bible being false, God proves them wrong. He may take a little while in proving them. He may give them time to realize their ignorance. But eventually, God says, just again, so you'll understand, it's true. What happened here in John 5 at the Pool of Bethesda was a turning point in Jesus' ministry in the opposition against him by the Jewish leaders. John has been an eyewitness of all these things. A follower of Jesus for all of his public ministry. He's written this book in hindsight near the end of his life, almost at the conclusion of the first century. He's looking back, thinking of everything I've seen of Jesus, of, this new, of the church that has, that has sprung about in his name. And he picks certain things to tell us so that we might believe. I'm glad he told this story. Bethesda. I'm glad he gave this account, Bethesda. I'm glad he relayed this history, Bethesda. Bethesda means literally the house of mercy. It was anything but. It was really a hangout of misery where the sick, the lame, the disabled, the diseased would gather hoping that they could do something, some stroke of luck to affect their own healing. The context of this pool, we have to understand, there was a Greek cult called Asclepius. Uh, there, there was a, this belief of a pagan god of healing named Asclepius. And, and during the Hellenistic period, when the Greek influence and thought was infiltrating Hebrew thought, they built Asclepians in honor of the pagan god Asclepius. And the Asclepians were healing centers. And at these healing centers, the ill and the disabled would gather uh, at these healing centers and they would drink and bathe, bathe in the waters of the Asclepian and they would sleep in the temple areas around the pools. And in a section of, of these temples called the Abiton, they believed that that was the place where divine dreams would be imparted to those who were ill and either the pagan god Asclepius or his serpents would give clues as to the individual's healing. The, the, the logo, if you will, for the god Asclepius is this. The serpent on a snake for healing. So we understand why our modern medicine will use this as their logo, right? But there's another logo that modern medicine uses as their logo as well, and it's this one. This is probably the one that's more familiar more familiar with, right? Do you know what this is a symbol of? Hermes, the god of commerce. <laughs> it's no wonder that the medical community uses this. 
at the, these Asclepian temples, where they were typically built near springs or shallow pools or underground springs that would bubble up. And when the natural springs would bubble up, people attributed the bubbling of the spring and the waters to healing powers given them by spirits. And so the sick would wait by the waters, praying, fasting, chanting, singing, waiting. Until Asclepius or one of his serpent spirits would churn the waters. And hopefully by a stroke of luck be the first ones in. That's why the context, if you understand that, that's why in verse 4 of chapter 5 is not listed in your Bible between 3 and 5. John chapter 5 says verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. And then there's an editor's note at the bottom that gives us an explanation of what's going on. It's added so that people who weren't aware of the time would know. Now, just think about it. I'm not going to get into the discussion of was it really an angel of God? Was this how they explained it and it was really something else? You believe what you want to believe. Let me suggest to you, what a cruel teaching about how God works, though. First come, first serve. If you're able to make it, God might show up. If you're able to do something that would convince him that you're worthy of being healed, maybe he'll do something on your behalf. What a cruel teaching about how God works. What a cruel God that would be for a man who's been an invalid for 38 years to see the possibility and never be able to reach it because he wasn't able to affect it himself. What a cruel God. So Jesus enters and heals this paralyzed man. This was not just one of those neat miracles that Jesus did. Jesus was confronting the pagan idea, the pagan legend, this long-standing religious and cultural myth because he wanted his Greek-influenced followers to have a new understanding about the power of God, about his divinity, and the fact that he is God. As with the Samaritan woman at the well that we looked at in John 2 and the Roman official son you looked at last week, Jesus is making the claim. Jesus is making the claim that He is the source of healing. When Jesus saw this paralyzed man, the Bible uses this word, John uses the word paralyzed, and what it means literally is, a, is that he's been withered by disease. This man has been withered by disease, and Jesus sees him and learns of his disease learns of the fact that he's paralyzed. One of the things that, that I'm learning about my God is this, and it speaks to me. Mercy to others begins with how we view them. Jesus saw this man, viewed him as one who was suffering, and had mercy on him. Mercy to others begins with how we view them. This man had been paralyzed for 38 years. You know why that's important? Because it's a long time. I mean, why else would it be important? You know, one of the reasons it's important is because he had been paralyzed longer than the average lifespan of the people at that time. He'd been paralyzed longer than most of them had been able to stay alive. And as such, he had likely, huh, lost hope. Just stopped trying. 
He figured my current condition is my permanent condition because it's not ever changed. How long has that been your story? I mean, have you ever had a problem so long? Have you ever had a sin that lingered so long? Have you ever had a hang-up, a habit, a hurt that's been so long that it's just become the way of life for you? You've never been able to break it. You've never been able to get free. You've never been able to find release. It's just part of who you are now, right? And so we believe that my current condition, I've had it so long, it's my permanent condition. And I need you to know that with Jesus, our current condition does not have to be our permanent condition. And this is true about every situation in life. Some of your marriages have been bad for a long time. And you just figure that's the way it is. And the current condition of your marriage, you figure that's our permanent condition, this thing, if I choose to stay in it, it doesn't have to be. Some of you have been addicted to who knows what for a long time, and you've never been able to break free. You've never been able to get free of those chains. And you figure, well, this is just my current condition because my current condition is my permanent condition. It doesn't have to be. Some of you, your current condition is a condition of grief and bitterness, and it's been a part of your heart for so long. You figure that's just my permanent condition. It doesn't have to be. I love how Jesus, he approaches this man, and Jesus tells him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Here's what I love about what Jesus is saying. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, get up. Now, how do you tell a paralyzed man to get up? Unless he has immediately been healed. So the command to get up is the implication that your life has just changed. Get up. Your life has just changed. And some of you, I believe God wants to tell you right now, get up, because it has changed. And when he says, pick up your mat, what he's saying is, take away that thing that you have been a slave to your whole life. Your life has changed. Get rid of that thing that you've been a slave to. And I think that's what God wants to tell some of you today. And when he says walk, what he's saying is now live in the freedom that you've just gained. Your life has changed. Don't be a slave to that anymore. Now live in new freedom. Here's what I know about God. We got to understand this, that God's commandments are God's enablements. When God commands something, immediately since he's commanded it, he's given us the power, the authority, and the ability to do that which he has commanded. He will not tell us to do something over which we have not the ability or power authority to do. So when he tells a crippled man to get up, he's already given him the power, authority, and ability to get up. His commandments are his enablements. Here's what this means for us. When he tells you to forgive, he's given you the power, authority, and ability to forgive. When he tells you to love your enemy, yeah, even that one, he's given you the power, authority, ability to actually love your enemy. You understand this? Can I push it a little bit more? When he gives you the command to tithe, 
and a hush fell over the crowd. He's given you the power for the ability to do it if you choose to. Take up your mat and take it away. What he's saying is your healing has just been made permanent. And what he's doing, he's indicating that what has happened at the pool most oftentimes has been temporary. And this is how it works when we try to affect our own healing. It's temporary at best. The marriage gets better for a little bit. I stop my addiction for a little bit. And then it comes back with a vengeance. And when Jesus steps in and says, you're healed, get rid of that which you were a slave to, live in freedom, that is permanent. And if it's permanent, the point is, why go back to that which you have been healed from? Like a dog to your vomit, the Bible says. Why go back? When God delivers you, from that addiction, why pick it back up? When God delivers you from porn, why go back to that? When God delivers you from the habit that you've not been able to break, why do you pick it back up? When God delivers you from hate, why pick it back up? Like a dog to vomit, we return. Why go back to those things? Why go back to worry? Why go back to bitterness? Why go back to stress? Why go back to fear? Why go back to depression? Why go back to grudges? Pick up your mat, walk, and live in the freedom that you've now been granted. Why would we return like a dog to our vomit? Does that make sense to any of us? Yet that is many people's reality. It's amazing to me. This is why this is becoming one of my favorite stories. What was the role of the man's faith in his healing? You're missing it. You're missing it. He stood up. He was, you know, he, he obeyed. That's, he had already been healed at that point. What was his role of faith in his own healing? You're shaking your head no. Say it with your words. He had no role of faith. His, this man's role, his, his, his role of faith in his own healing was nothing. He had no faith. It's so interesting to me that up to this point, the miracles that Jesus performed were either on behalf of the one who was needing the miracle, who had faith, or the faith of their friends that brought him to Jesus. See the paralyzed man on the mat where they tore open the roof and let him down. Jesus said, the faith of your friends. But this one, had no faith, only excuses. Now, he's sitting at the pool waiting, so maybe he had a little bit, like maybe a mustard seed. I've heard that before in the Bible somewhere. But here's what I know. Though doubt is great, when you want to quit believing, keep at it. When you want to keep praying, keep at it. When you have more doubt than faith, keep calling out in the midst of your doubt. Why? Because apparently, as I read the Bible, I mean, I'm looking at this right now, and Jesus is, he's interacting with him, and 
He's been paralyzed for 38 years, and I'm, I'm trying to find somewhere. Apparently, according to what the Bible says, God doesn't require much faith at all from us in order to do a miracle. Not much at all. I love the fact that Jesus didn't ask this man about the process. He didn't ask this man about the pool. He didn't ask this man about his problem. He didn't ask this man about the barrier that was in front of him. He didn't ask this man about the burden he was carrying. He didn't ask this man about his brokenness and why he made him lame. He didn't ask this man about the helpers that he had or didn't have around him. He didn't ask about his heritage, and he didn't ask about what hindered him. The only thing that Jesus asked this man is, do you have the desire to be healed? What a seemingly odd and cruel question to ask a paralyzed man. Wouldn't you agree? What a seemingly odd and cruel question. Do you want to, what do you mean do I want to be healed? In one of my missionary trips I took to Costa Rica, I was preaching in a big out open air thing and there were thousands of people and God was ministering in a, in a mighty way. And at the end of, uh, 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 of uh, my message, uh, people were coming forth for prayer and big outdoor arena and this one man came to me with four friends led to me, and through an interpreter, he said, I'm blind. I've, I've had a progressive eye disease for years and years and years. I spent all my money on doctors trying to get better. I'm completely blind now. I have no hope, except I believe that God wants to heal me, and he wants to heal me through you. Will you pray over me? I've never done anything like that before, but I believe the Bible. And so I said, sure. I put my hands on him and prayed with authority according to his faith and what I knew from Scripture. And he fell over backwards and his friends jumped out of the way. They didn't even catch him. They were terrible friends. <laughs> and I knelt over and put my hands on him. And things fell from his eyes and he opened his eyes. through. The, and he said, I can see, I can see birds. I can see trees. I can see people. Amen. And God miraculously restored his sight. I'd never seen it before. The next day we were preaching at this other uh, event. And I was with some guys who saw what had happened and I think honestly were spiritually just a little jealous that they didn't get to be a part of it. Uh, they didn't think I had a relationship with God strong enough for him to use someone like me. <laughs> and they saw a man in a wheelchair in the front row and they approached this man and said, do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? And the man said, no. They said, why not? He said, because I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. They said, well, even if you don't want to be healed, that we're going to heal you anyway. And I thought, what incredible arrogance and what spiritual abuse. And they tried their best in all their might, like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, crying out and yelling and hollering and screaming, and nothing changed. So apparently the question, do you want to get better, is not an off-the-wall question. And I'm not, not surprised that that's a question because it's a question that is asked every Sunday spiritually. Do you want to be healed spiritually? Do you want to come to Christ, confess your sin, and repent and be made whole? Do you want to or not? And many people will walk out saying, no, I'm fine. And so the question, do you want to be healed, is a valid question. And it's a question God still asks every one of us every day. And this morning is no exception. Do you want to be healed?
Jesus strips away his excuses and strips away his reasons. No longer can this man say, well, I was born, you know, I was born into a family that never, or I never had the opportunity to do that. And everyone else always got to just strip away all that stuff. Because Jesus knew that the healing was not in the pool. Healing was not in the process. Healing was not in the paradigm or the model. Healing was in the person that stood before the man. Do you want to be better? Do you want to be healed? And Jesus asked that question of the man to elicit a little bit of expectation and hope. God, if there's hope, yes, I do. Jesus sees this opportunity to confront religious superstition that by magic the waters were, were, were churned. He sees the opportunity to proclaim his power over false religious beliefs. He sees this opportunity to proclaim, as he will in verse 17 of this chapter, that he and the Father are one. And Jesus does not do this miracle. He does not intervene in order to put on a show. See, the miraculous move of Jesus has a purpose. And his purpose in this miraculous move is to confront our religious superstition and to highlight grace. His miraculous move has a purpose. And it's to tear down these false religious beliefs that God's work depends on our effort. And his miraculous move has a purpose to show that he is God in the flesh. I think this also tells us of God's heart of compassion when he confronts suffering. That sometimes he chooses by his grace to intervene. And when I read this story, did you notice who, who, like, like, This guy's been at this pool longer than anybody else. He's outlived everybody's life expectancy, so he's been there the longest. This pool, imagine all the the disease, all the crippledness, all the bodily fluids that they can't manage themselves, the pus, the infection. This just was absolutely rancid. And they know that this guy has been there the longest. He's like the mayor of despair. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, hey, Matt, how you doing? Get it, Matt? Heather, I thought that was good. I just thought of that. I thought it was funny. That was funny. So you see him there. And so when Jesus heals him, he pops up, picks up his bedroll and walks. Did you know how many of them said, oh, me too? Any of them? None. This amazes me. I mean, how many of us, when when we meet a doctor, we become friends with the doctor, inevitably we have conversations, we're like, hey, doc, I got this. Would you just... You know what I'm saying? Like, why wouldn't they say, oh, if you could do that for him, maybe there's so, me too. You know, maybe they never believed. And seeing this one thing, I'm going to change your mind. And maybe the reason Jesus picked this one man is because at one time he had faith. I mean, is it, doesn't it work this way? That isn't it our deficiencies that destroy our hope? And the longer we're weak, the less hope we have. The longer we live with deficiency, the less hope we have. I think Jesus knew that this miracle wasn't going to create new faith. 
Otherwise, all those needing healing would have responded. Otherwise, the Jewish leaders would have realized who Jesus was. And, and, and maybe this, why this one man and not the others is because that God knew that all this was going to do was confirm what the man already knew at one point. That God is able. See, we've got to be careful not to seek the miraculous so that we'll have faith. We must trust God in faith regardless of the miracle. But when given the opportunity by faith to cry out, Oh God, if you can do that for them, do it for me. And then trust that God will do and allow whatever His grace will determine. So I'm reminded of Jesus' words for the woman at the well. Woman, if you only knew who I was. So what I'm learning and what I want to encourage you this is don't let others' religious traditions or religious expectations direct how you live in the freedom of God's grace. God, I believe regardless, but I'm crying out as one who believes and I will allow, I will accept whatever your grace will allow me. The religious people's response. The day on which Jesus, this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been helped or healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. You know, sometimes the educated religious people are the stupidest ones around. They, they say this against the law to carry mat. It was not. It wasn't at all. It was against the oral tradition of how they enforced the law, but it wasn't against the law. And this is what religious people do. Be very careful. Well, when I read this, I think it means that you should. They give interpretation of what they think rather than what the Word says. And Jesus is making a point that the Sabbath was made for man, for the healing of man's ills, and to give a taste of a higher life of rest and restoration to come. See, God's name, one of his names is El Shaddai, means our sustainer. And the fact that Jesus is saying, and we'll say later in this chapter, that my father is always at work, so I am always at work. And because he is always at work, we can afford to take a day off. That's what he's saying. And rest in his provision, and rest in what he's already done, and worship together. And this gives me confidence. Even when I can't see God working, Jesus says in verse 17, my father is always at work and so am I. I know he is even when I can't see him. He is. And this is meant to give us faith and a confidence that Jesus is supreme over all things. And because he neither sleeps nor slumbers, we can. And that he's worthy to be followed wholeheartedly, which there, there's no other way to follow him. Jesus will talk about this man's obedience in a minute. Let me just cast this vision for you to help you understand what obedience is. Obedience to God does not produce a relationship with God. Obedience to God proves a relationship with God. And this is where I think so many religious people get it wrong. 
We think we have to try to be obedient to produce a good relationship with God. And the more obedient we are, the better the relationship because our obedience produces a relationship. It does not at all. Don't believe that. Obedience simply proves a relationship with God. It doesn't produce it. So this man has complete freedom. His life sentence of paralysis has been lifted. He's been given the gift of life and mobility. He's been given complete freedom to do whatever he wants to do. Whatever he wants to do. What's the first thing we know that this man does after being healed? Being given complete, what's the first thing he does? You missed it. Where does Jesus find him? At the, he goes to church. The first thing this guy does with his newfound freedom is he goes to church. I don't need to tell you this, but there are some people who need to know what's the first thing that we do with our freedom of the weekend? Well, y'all came to choose to come to church. Good on you. But how many times in our freedom? Well, I got a day off now. I'm going to the coast. I got a day off now. I'm going to sleep in. I got a day off now. I'm going to catch up on my work. I got a day off. You got complete freedom. And obedience not to have a good relationship, but to prove it's there. Don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing post-COVID. I love this about Jesus. He sees them later. Look at what he says. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, huh, you're doing pretty all right right now, right? Stop sinning. Or something worse is going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. When Jesus uses the words to this man, stop sinning, it's in the present tense, indicating that Jesus is referring to an ongoing sin in this man's life that he has not confessed nor repented of yet. Now let this sink in. This man had no faith that prompted a healing. He has been healed, and apparently he is still living in a sinful state. Now you're not impressed with this yet like I am. Well, understand. This man currently still living in a sinful state, received the mercy and the grace of God for healing in his life with no guarantee that he was going to change. Even after he was healed, indicated by Christ, that maybe he had not planned on stopping his life of sin. And yet he still received the mercy and the grace of God. That... <laughs> Have you not understood yet that the grace of God is amazing? This blows me away. I would expect you to say, look, stop sinning and then I'll. Now, Jesus does get to the warning. Stop or else. Or else something worse is going to happen. Apparently, a couple things. 
One, there are times when their physical element is due to sin. Either from just a sinful lifestyle and behavior leads to bad stuff, or as a direct result of sin. Apparently that's so. Though not all the time. Please don't ever make that mistake of thinking that you got a cold because there's sin in your life. Like that's not. But but apparently there's something worse than being paralyzed 38 years. You know what it is? 39 years. <laughs> I'm surprised someone didn't say that. That's the obvious answer, right? <laughs> no, what's worse is eternal suffering because you refuse to repent over your sin. That's worse. And so our warning in this place is to repent. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, there's a lot you've got to repent of. And it's real simple. And the healing is immediate. If you do have a relationship with Jesus. See, here's the thing. You can be saved going to heaven, but walking in the opposite direction of God right now. And that stuff needs to be repented of. Not because you're fearful of destruction, but so that you can repent and return. That's what repentant means, to turn from the current course and go the opposite way. If there's ongoing sin in your life, what Jesus would say is repent. Confess it and repent. You're going this way. You know, turn around and go the other way. Let me tell you, here's the great thing about repentance. Is that repentance is the only pathway that God gives us to reverse the curse of sin. And in repentance, one of three things happen. Either in repentance, God by His grace cancels, completely cancels and erases the consequences of sin, and sometimes He does that. Or, secondly, by His grace, He limits the impact of sin in our lives. So we don't reap all that we've sown. Or thirdly, by His grace, He gives us the strength to live through the consequences and blesses us in the midst of it. None of that happens without confession and repentance. And so what I would encourage us in this place to repent and ask God for the full measure of what His grace will allow. God, whatever that is, give me the full measure of what Your grace will allow. I repent of my sin, of my lethargy, of my apathy, of my arrogance to think I have nothing to repent of. Why this just this one man and not the others? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus does not act according to need. Jesus acts in obedience to the will of His Father. And for some reason, the Father chose this one. And I pray He chooses me and you by His mercy and His grace. At the end of the day, you and I are one of two people in this story. One, we're the one who's been blessed by God, the one deserving. This man did nothing to deserve the blessing and healing of God. And we sit here and stand here as the one blessed by Him, though very undeserving. See, for me, this is the story of grace. For me, this is my story. That God picked me out of a crowd. That, that, that many may be around us in need, yet God picked us. And even when I wasn't walking with God, God still picks me and still blesses me. It's grace. 
But that grace comes with a warning, stop sinning. Stop playing games with your faith. Stop being involved with Jesus and get serious about it. Stop being a fan of Jesus and become a fanatic about discipleship and walking with Him. Repent. Return to your first love. The second burn that we are in this story are those who are sitting around seeing what Jesus could do, but not crying out for help. I don't want to be the one that sees what Jesus does, that reads what Jesus does, and watch him walk by without saying, Me too! Me too! Don't you leave until I get it also. To cry out, me too, but whatever you choose to be on, to do on my behalf, by your grace, I'm going to believe you regardless of what you do. And I'm going to cry out, me too, I want that too, but whatever you choose to do, by your grace, I accept that. As I read this account, I'm left with a question. Why would we see and why would we know what Jesus can do and still not believe and still not cry out, God, me too. And I wonder if God is asking some of you this morning, by faith, do you want to be healed? Hmm. As I was thinking about this, I, I, I was thinking about you, and I thought of this question, can it happen to you? And then I thought of the statement, it can happen to you. Here's how we're going to close this. I realize what time it is. Um, I'm going to give you a chance to say, Jesus, me too. Heal me too. With whatever that is. Spiritual, emotional, physical. With whatever that is. God, heal me too. But part of that is your own confession. That you confess your sin. You confess your own apathy. You confess your own lethargy. You confess your own anger, bitterness, grief. That you make confession. Not so that, not because you're fearful of destruction, but simply so you can repent and do it the other way. And say, Father, heal me too. I accept whatever your mercy and grace will allow me. And return to your first love. Let me give you a chance to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. But here's how this we're not going to take a break in the middle of the song to do more announcements or whatever. We, we've given you whatever you need to say as far as you know. If you made some decision, let us know. We want to walk with you through that. You need to tithe or give something new, or the box is on the back or the app. Well, you do whatever you got to do. But we're just going to sing through this song. And here's what I'm asking of you. And after we pray and as we're singing, you just be 
in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, whatever that means. Want to stand up, stand up, sit down, sit down. I don't care. As long as you're, I don't want you to rush through this. Just sit in this for a minute. And if God is telling you something, if God's prompting you, if there's some confession you need to make, make it. If there's some repentance you need to go, go do it. You want to stay there where you are? Do it there where you are. You want to come up here and talk to me and let me pray with you? I'm happy to do that. Jeff's not going to dismiss after we're done. Just don't rush through this. When you feel like God's done whatever God wants to do with you, fantastic, man. Go in the grace and, and, and the mercy of God. You got permission to go or to come. It's up to you. When you feel like it's done, it's done. Stay here as long as you want or as little as you want. Just don't. We are at the pool of illness, despair, and sin. And God's asking, do you want to be healed? Your answer is your destiny. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've not asked of us to make ourselves worthy of your mercy and grace. Father, there are some of us here who are asking you in gentleness with mercy and grace to convict us so that we can repent. And there are some here who are crying out to you, heal me too. And if that's you, in this moment with God, confess what needs to be confessed. You know the sin. You know the arrogance. You know the apathy. You know the arrogance of feeling like you don't have anything to confess. Confess and repent and say, Father, forgive me. Thank you that you have. I'm going to walk the other way now. And return to my first love. Father, I thank you that you want to do good business with us and good work in us. Do all that you desire. We trust you. You are safe. Your arms are safe to fall into. Your hands are faith, are, are, are safe to entrust ourselves to. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do whatever it is that is in your mind and on your heart, in our lives. Make us new. Father, some are crying out for healing. Heal. Heal. Emotionally, heal. Relationally, heal. Spiritually, in the forgiveness of sin, the removal of the curse of sin, heal. Physically. Not so that we will believe, but so that you will gain glory in showing who you are. We just want to see you. Heal. In your name I pray, amen. Whatever it means for you to do business with God, do it. When you've done it, you're free. Go in the grace and the mercy and the power of God. And like the woman at the well who went to her hometown and told all her friends to come see, come back and see next week.
Yes, Senhor.